Yo, welcome to Voice Acting Up, a podcast where I normally interview working voice actors who are working their way up. But today, I chat with the legendary Peter Munters. If you've taken an in-person van clinic, you know him as the virtuoso audio engineer that makes us all sound good. But he's also engineered top actors on pretty much every great show and game from the past decade, and that is not an exaggeration. And if you're not already impressed, he started multiple bands, one of which was signed by Capitol Records. So if any of you needed a reminder that audio engineers are the most interesting people at any session, enjoy this episode. The first question I ask mostly voice actors is what is the very first paid gig you ever had and what are some of your favorite ones? So basically the same question to you, but audio engineer wise, like what's the first paid sort of, I guess, voiceover related gig you've engineered and what are some of your favorite ones that you've worked on? Wow. Um, the very first gig I engineered. Gosh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It was definitely an audio book. Okay. Honestly, I don't know if this counts as a voiceover gig, but <laughs> the only uh, paid gig I've done as an actor, I think there was a VO component to it. Um, my my ex-girlfriend at the time was, was just like, hey, uh, do you want to audition for a thing? It's a union gig. I mean, if you get it, we'll just find out if they can Taft-Hartley you. And she explained what that meant. And um, we auditioned for the thing over Skype in my bedroom, just like doing antics, playing guitar, jumping out of the closet and stuff like that. It was a, um, a charter communications cable commercial, national commercial. And we booked hmm. the thing. So oh, wow. uh, and at one point, I in one section of this, I had to uh, dress in a gorilla suit. And we were riding a roller coaster with me as a gorilla and my girlfriend next to me like, whoa. Screaming and going through the pantomime of the roller coaster. So that was my first acting, paid acting, paid VO gig. I've never really gotten behind the mic and done uh, a proper, like, um, original dialogue record or ADR record. I've done a little bit of of loop group stuff and definitely armpit farts in uh, the Mayan episode of Mr. Peabody and Sherman show on uh, netflix (laughs) oh yeah i did one cameo on uh, an episode of pinky malinky the uh, nickelodeon netflix original series but that was a sound effect it was a vocal sound effect and it is garfield saying meow (laughs) and that's all that's all i did beautiful (laughs) that's pretty cool but yeah when i started recording um I come from a music background. I was in a punk rock band, alternative rock band in Virginia after high school and uh, into college. We got signed, went on the road, toured around the world. And that's how I made my way out here. Hmm. And also how I discovered that I was curious and had a burgeoning love for the recording arts and um, everything that comes along with it. So after my band's sort of uh, we're scattered to the winds and our record labels were kaput. I went to recording school after I started to stumble into the record room uh, with audiobooks. Hmm. And uh, just just in an effort to like raise the, the professionalism of my craft and see what it's all about. Um, so yeah. that's how I found my way into recording for animation. I, I uh, was offered an internship here at Atlas Oceanic Sound and Picture when the studio was still relatively new in 2014 after I graduated from recording school. 
Wow. And um, before too long, I was hanging out in the room with Andrea Romano, taking notes and assisting uh, Devin, my boss here at Atlas Oceanic, working with all of these amazing actors and creative types, people who literally came up with the stuff that just uh, totally bewitched me as a kid hmm. um, in animation and movies and TV. So I don't know who doesn't love cartoons. I always tell myself that. But when I came here, when I had this opportunity, I just thought there's no way I can turn this down. I have to at least see what makes this world tick. <laughs> and I'm pleased to say that, um, you know, getting to play a little bit with actors and support their craft has been intensely rewarding for me. It's just awesome. That's awesome. Cool. Well, I mean, we're going to talk for a million minutes about anything animation related. But, um, you know, you mentioned that you were part of a punk rock band. You you guys toured. So I'm curious, yeah. you know, once you went um, to school to learn more about audio engineering afterwards, first of all, did you after you learned all of that, did you look back and think, man, if I knew that when we were recording, like I could have mastered this a little bit differently or that like <laughs> would you find yourself thinking about that? Well, that's just it. Um, I. I was so oblivious and so, um, uh, let's say I blinded by the artist's position that i never gave any of that a thought. I looked down at the console, like a massive classic Neve console and saw a compressor sitting there and said, threshold of what Ra- ratio? Like hmm. what? I turned to the engineer, the guy who was like coaching my vocal takes, Cameron Webb. Um, and I was more than happy to just trust all of that technical expertise to the hands of someone who understood. So I could just make noise and hopefully find a song in it. Right. But yeah, I'd just be like ratio, like comparing what to what. Like, it, you know, it's either loud or it's quiet. Just make it the right <laughs> level, right? And he's like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't until I started to get paid to do this stuff where I was like, yeah, this is not only really interesting, but I want to I want to be able to do it well. So I made a conscious choice to shift from wearing a beret and a, you know, a palette and a paintbrush to putting on the lab coat, you know, like the mm. classic uh, Abbey Road imagery of the 60s where the engineers are just all like staunch and like laboratory <laughs> scientists. Yeah. I mean, you guys are modest because like I, I I never like toured or anything, but I'd make music occasionally and I had some friends I play with. And um, on the times that I try to make something myself, I didn't have anything fancy. It was just like on GarageBand. But like it's so hard to master audio. Everything, at least to me, like it, it's hard to make it not sound muddy and to make everything sort of sound crisp and I don't know. I don't know. If you have the, the magic code for that, you know, the up, up, left, down, A, B, like, <laughs> let me know what that is. <laughs> well, there's certain rules. I mean, there's certain fundamental um, relationships and uh, things that certain frequencies evoke in us, you know, mm. from the very, like, uh, primal lizard brain uh instinct to either fight or flight which can be triggered by you know some frequency between 20 hertz and 40 hertz that you might not hear but you certainly feel and know to get the hell out of there wow to uh you know something soft and soft yet cutting in the mid-range somewhere around i don't know three to five kilohertz uh, around the the timbre of a mother whispering to her child, you know, hmm. like it's it's all about certain bandwidths of resonance and the energy and the emotions and the life experience that's reflected in those emotions. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing about recording is just get the source to sound good. The microphone is just an ear. Like depending on how you turn your head, something might sound really good or not so great. And um, 
this makes me shit makes me shit excuse me this makes me think <laughs> of the great engineer al schmidt who just mm. passed away actually mm. um he uh, was probably like the the greatest icon in the recording world um and he came out here i think in the late 60s and and uh was an engineer at rca records worked with the rolling stones and, and basically every every great artist um around and uh he his whole thing was like microphone placement you know move move a microphone an inch until you find the place where it it works um and anyone who ever worked with al schmidt will tell you that uh, by the time he finished his rough mix, getting the faders in position and pushed record, you were listening to virtually a finished product. Hmm. So, wow. Yeah, it's all about making sure you you tune the bad stuff out of your room and turn the microphone the right way and experiment until you find it. Yeah. Okay. That's solid advice. But uh, before we get into more audio engineer related stuff and just anything voiceover related, I always like to get a little bit into sort of the backstory of guests. So um, you mentioned that you're from Virginia, right? Born and um, raised. Okay. So what was your uh, what was your upbringing like, and like how did it eventually lead to sort of music and and performing? Um. So I grew up in Mount Vernon, Virginia, uh, right near Alexandria. It's actually the the setting of George Washington's ancestral home. It's on the Potomac River, about 14 miles south of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And my parents moved there in 1980 when my mom was pregnant with me and my dad was about to embark on his first uh, partnership practice as an orthopedic surgeon, young doctor. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I had a really nice upbringing. It's a beautiful place to grow up. And I also grew up in a musical household. Both of my grandparents were musicians in Latvia before World War II. And I, although I never met my grandfather, my grandma moved in with us when I was three. Hmm. And so uh, some rudimentary piano teachings came from her and more or less just a constant immersion in um, uh, the, the folklore and experience of, of a refugee and immigrant who was also uh, formerly an opera singer in her previous life. Huh. So that was a really cool thing. And, and I, I definitely feel like that's the obvious reason why I'm so magnetically drawn to music and that it's like both the core of me and the thing I'm, I'm always searching for. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I went, I had a pretty run of the mill, um, privileged public school education my parents expected me to get good grades go to college etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. and uh while i did that um rebellion got the best of me and i just once i discovered the guitar and found out that uh, by our own wits we could write songs and figure out how to go on tour it was only a matter of time before i realized that like i i too was going to find my own way to go on sabbatical and and you know hopefully maybe finish up college later which i did mm-hmm. note that parents i did it uh, <laughs> uh, but it it was just inevitable that we were going to do the music thing. And and so when we came to our parents with the opportunity and the resources to be like, look, we want to stop going to school and try this other thing. They, they were chagrined, obviously, but Mm -hmm. they let us do it. And it was, it was an awesome experience. Cool. Yeah. I had a similar thing when, when I just, cause I was, I first um, was studying engineering. And then once I decided to go to film school instead, my dad, it's not the thing that parents want to hear, but um, they had, my dad had me 
chat with him and sort of prove that I was serious about it. And it wasn't just like a floundering, you know, like dabbling in a bunch of stuff. And thankfully, I was good with my words. Um, and, and he was cool with it. Um, so you mentioned, you know, eventually you discovered punk rock and rebellion and, and uh, basically went off to do the musician thing. When did you decide? How did you get a band together? When did you start touring? What was yeah. touring like? So I was really fortunate um, in that in in uh, at Mount Vernon High School. This actually goes back a few years prior to junior high school. Um, I was fortunate to meet a friend on the school bus who who became my closest collaborator and someone who we we could trade discoveries with one another. And the day we met, I was wearing a Green Day T-shirt. It was 1994. Uh, it was early Kerplunk, their second album, Green Day T-shirt. And he noticed and uh, came and sat with me in the back of the bus and brought a Walkman with a cassette in it. And he played me like five different bands, I think all of which were from uh, either the Bay Area or Southern California. Um, and just like click the light bulb on in my head. Um, and I don't know what it was about hearing music that not everyone immediately knew about because uh, let's face it i think at the bottom line music is a thing that makes us all kind of want to be together and want to party together and understand mm -hmm. one another find some common ground but i really got high off of the sense that i had found something that very few people knew about and mm -hmm. that was like that kind of became a guiding light feeling in, in that relationship. And as we formed the bands, um, we had two together. Mm. So it was really about just like having our thing and like being able to do our thing. And then also like return to, to high school and like always know that like we had our really cool thing. It was like <laughs> the the secret clubhouse, the secret hideouts, which yeah. where we keep all of our stuff hidden. And, and it's what we're going to do with our lives. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the thing. And, and we were pretty good. We could write songs. We wrote music. We got the attention of some um, independent labels. And with their support, we started to uh, and the and the resources that were very quickly becoming manifest to us in AOL Instant Messenger and email and the Internet, as it was in, in the late 90s. Um, we began to make contact with other like-minded individuals all up and down the eastern seaboard and, and across the country and around the world. And so the whole thing just kind of snowballed from there. It was a very, very much a DIY operation at that time when we first started to go out and play shows. Okay. Yeah, I you know, you mentioned you music is sort of the uniter. It brings a lot of people together to experience the same emotion. I've always said like there's so many different art forms. I honestly think music is the most important of all the art forms because there's so many other art forms that can't that can't have their intended effect without music especially like obviously whether it's film or animation um, and music can stand have its effect totally on its own I, I love that about music but um, so when you toured how do I ask this like for example I have a, a stand-up friend who and you know comedians tour a lot um, but what kind of blew my mind was how business savvy he had to be because he'd have to think, well, you know, are you going to get the money up front or make it through merch or whatever? And then you have to figure out where to stay and everything. So, like, obviously it was kind of DIY for you guys. But um, what was the touring experience like, sort of the behind the scenes stuff that people might not be aware of? Well, I've seen the whole shebang, Sean. 
We started out totally on our own. On our first tour, we borrowed our drummer's dad's Pathfinder and drove to New Jersey and started out in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I think in a bar where we shouldn't have been even, but I don't know, they let us play. <laughs> um, and and yeah, we learned all those things. Like um, the, the budgetary constraints, the logistics, can we sell merch? Can we sell music? Can we stay somewhere for free? Who's, mm-hmm. who's friends with whom? And do their parents uh, want to treat us to dinner? Uh, <laughs> and so on and so forth. And um, honestly, that formula led, formula led to a vast number of really awesome relationships, not just with... Uh, with uh, I'll say with both uh, other bands in other places mm-hmm. and all kinds of people who just love music. And it was cool to be um, making stuff that people could be enthusiastic about at that very grassroots level. So we could just be ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. and eventually um, we played with with some pretty big acts and um, got signed ourselves and uh, my second band, Runner Runner, the first band was called Over It. It was more of like an alternative rock, punk rock band. And then I was in another band with some of the same people called Runner Runner, which was a straight up pop band. And with that band, we had a lot more juice. We were signed to Capitol Records through a wow. joint venture with uh, David Letterman's production company. There's mm-hmm. a lot of promotional muscle behind it, all of the resources you could want at that level. And so we were on a tour bus then. The logistics amounted to... Um, it, managing our promotional duties at radio stations and regional events in the morning to getting to the show in the afternoon and playing and then getting whatever rest we could at night. So it it was, it's really like an economy of scale. It was still the same thing, same trailer, just bigger at the same gear, just more organized with a crew to help keep it tight and a merch guy to manage that and an accountant to make sure our taxes were okay and a manager to hopefully push us to the next level, uh, which we failed to do. But it was an awesome ride. We we toured for probably 18 months straight after our uh, our record came out on Capitol. Wow. And, you know, I've heard my song on the radio, and it's, there was a lot of cool milestones like that. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, you weren't joking. You you did run the full gamut. Um, and, yeah, that's like, uh, that's actually, that ties into voice acting, because with voice acting, you know, it's, People think of it as a job, but it's really more of a business and like an entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, so figuring out all those different departments can definitely be helpful in making like a lasting career. Yeah, so, especially when you think of the investment that voice that any actor has to make. I mean, yeah. I feel like it doesn't matter who you are, what cloth you're cut from. Every successful actor, every actor whom the community regards as good insists that you just have to keep learning you have to stay in the trenches where your toolbox is open and it can grow and you can Mm -hmm. find other people who you might want to collaborate with or who you might hate but maybe they bring something out of you that you discover is a useful coloration of storytelling Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah um so how much time passed between you touring uh, with your band that was signed by Capitol Records to you deciding to sort of put on the lab coat and really study uh, the world of audio engineering? I think we got out of our deal end of winter 2012, maybe like February times. And we're, we had our like end agreements, exit agreements with our management and stuff all dialed in. Mm-hmm. What a mess that was. Gosh, what a weird feeling. Huh. Um 
And I started recording school at uh, Los Angeles Recording School. Shout out to you guys. I think it was the week before Thanksgiving 2014. And I met my wife like a week later. Uh, no, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> I'm getting mixed up now because I had two I had two stretches of of this education to get the full bachelor's degree. Mm. It was and I started the recording school part uh it was like November 12th, 2012. So like less than a year. And it, like I said before it was because I started to get all of this work like and I was working with some like recognizable actors too just in a in a dingy pool house in the valley recording audiobooks getting good at pro tools in this really weird context of audiobooks <laughs> and um yeah just spending time with actors mm -hmm. okay um well if you don't mind me asking you know you said it was kind of weird going through the end agreements and stuff uh, with your band and the managers and stuff what made it weird just some people didn't want it to end or it's just a complicated you know to make it official well there's always going to be a lot of finger pointing and cowardice and disappointment when you're involved in something, uh, A, so passionate, B, so long-term, and C, so damn expensive. Yeah. And um, that's basically the bottom line. And with projects like that, you know, you may or may not have heard the horror story, but major labels basically sign a band expense everything and then you recoup the cost of those expenses with the sales of records at a rate that's so marginal that you can never hope to make money selling records right. until you're an astronomical success the math is crazy huh. um so yeah i mean we just became a liability two times over and like a tax write-off for for emi in two different configurations and that's you know you can Jeez. choose to look at that a lot of really heavy and burdensome ways but i don't know i don't really have a lot of hard feelings left over from that i just miss and still long for and hope to be inspired in future music by the feeling of friendship that made us do it in the first place and yeah. that's what's up that's what it's still all about today every time we come in the record room <laughs> i think yeah absolutely that's huge that's what like I've said this before, but you know, with me specifically with voice acting, it's it's kind of like you're reliving that childhood like get togetherness, um, for lack of a better word. And one, you're reliving that feeling that you have as kids just playing. But two, sometimes you're literally reliving your childhood because you end up auditioning for like revivals of shows that you watch as a kid and everything. So it's kind of an interesting, you know, feeling. But man, so you started out in terms of engineering, uh, working like in in the valley with some actors on audiobooks. You've obviously done all kinds of anything audio related in anything that needs audio, pretty much. Do you have like a preference in terms of what types of sessions you like to sit in on more, whether it's audiobooks or animation or you know films? Well, I haven't recorded an audiobook in a while, and they're pretty enjoyable, but they're also very long, and they can be very tedious. I mean, as you can imagine, there are endless genres and styles, and if like, hey, who's to say how you'll feel about a certain author? I was fortunate mm -hmm. enough to be sitting in the chair for some pretty cool books, honestly, but um, nice. I I really enjoy the super challenging records, actually. Um, I like, I like the stressful ones 
where um, things move faster than they should and everyone's rushing a good thing, even though you're not supposed to. And that's just the way it is. Um, <laughs> like, you know, having uh, six to 10 talents and uh, mixing them all to separate tracks and making sure the mix is good for everyone, um, especially in this new new revolution of remote recording has become uh, kind of a rare scenario. So when I get one of those big sessions these days, I'm both nervous and also pretty excited because, you know, we'll get it done. <laughs> the adrenaline will pump, but we'll get it done. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's actually a, a good time to ask, you know, with this past year where there's a lot more remote recordings and stuff, how is, um, what are some of the differences that go into your job having to like audio engineer something like that where people are recording from different environments and microphones versus being in, you know, Atlas Oceanic? The most challenging part for me is getting good at controlling someone else's computer remotely. Hmm. It can be extremely disorienting because there are time lags. The internet uh, just can oscillate in bandwidth. Mm -hmm. um, and like people can be really intimidated by this process, um, especially even the ones who are relatively well-seasoned, let's say at this point. They've been doing this for a year. Um, but, you know, gremlins pop out of the woodwork, software needs to be rebooted, things don't work the way you expect them to, or you just make an honest mistake and something gets messed up. Mm -hmm. And that can be really, really stressful, especially when you should be focusing only on your creative spirit and like, and, and interfacing with the crew, with the creatives on the other end of the glass or the mm -hmm. camera, whatever it may be. Um, so I think that that's been the most challenging part and also uh, a pretty gratifying part because, you know, helping people get in their comfort zone and stay there and thrive there is, is like I said, what I really enjoy about all of this. Nice. Um, but the other thing I wanted to add was that I love when I get to sing a little bit because I don't know. It's just cool. It's like the secret ace up my sleeve. Not, not everyone knows that I have that sensibility mm -hmm. and, um, as bold and, and, uh, fearless as, as actors can be, nothing will take the confidence out of them faster than a surprise singing gig. Uh, for whatever reason. And like most people in this world can sing really well, uh, I've found. But pretty often I find the opportunity and I've gotten pretty bold with this. For a while, I, I'd, I'd like test the waters. I don't want to step on anyone's toes and it can mm -hmm. be a very prickly political environment in a cartoon record room. Right. But uh, people have come to know that they can lean on me to be to ask like what note is it or like what melody is that or what rhythm is that or where do we need to punch in and I'm really on the ball with moving song records along so I really enjoy that and it's it's uh, it's great it's yeah I never would have thought of that I mean obviously I've heard of some actors and and even just people say like their biggest fear is singing in front of people so I can see I. I never would have thought that, but I can see where that would come from. Um, so are there times like, like you mentioned, you know, you're helping them with, with the melody and stuff. Are there times where you're, you're literally able to sing in a session to try to help move things forward? Like, are you, yeah, literally you singing? know, like, yeah. um, sometimes like certain composers have, have come to a place where they know they can like lean on me to like help the actor that way. 
But that's the thing I always look out to not do is like get in the composer's way. Mm. But if I feel if I especially if I have a rapport with an actor already, like there's there's a handful of people who'd be like, can you have Peter sing it for me one time? And it's always <laughs> a little bit of like one of these. And like, OK, of course. Yes. Happily. Um, or like one director where I was working on a, a feature that's about to come out for Nickelodeon. And there's this there are a couple of big musical numbers in it. We did ADR for like a solid week on this thing. And the director, who I know pretty well and. Uh, She's a total badass, works on huge shows. Mm-hmm. Every day when we'd come to the record of the song, just one cue, ADR cue, would be like, beep it into the song and go. She'd always just pass the torch to me. Like, she didn't want to be accountable for this cue. Peter knows what to do. <laughs> just talk to him for a minute and like, we'll get it. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll give you feedback. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's, that's cool with me too. Yeah, that's amazing. I never, yeah. See, this is why I'm so glad to be able to speak. One, it's not every audio engineer can do this, even though a lot of them have musical backgrounds. But um, it's so fun to learn about the things that you do that I wouldn't think of, you know. Um, so uh, I'm curious. I have, uh, I've spoken with directors and asked them what the difference in their experience is like, um, you know directing a session in studio versus remote and one of the big differences for them is like it's it's trickier for them to have those sort of conversations with producers behind the glass and then translate for the actor is that something that's different for you i know like in general audio engineers aren't as you know vocal with with producers and and directors they they just get the job done with with the recording but has that been a difference for you with I only work on one show where I will give creative direction and it's because the room feels like family and I know that even if the comment I've made is totally out of line it'll be taken as a joke or I'll get put back in my place jokingly and I will take that spanking because Mm -hmm. it's coming from my family right (laughs) um and that show is Muppet Babies actually I'll go ahead and say it um if if I feel like the executive producer or the voice director has missed something or needs to be aware of something, that's one show where I'll I will stop the train and be like, I had, I had this thought. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And I, on a, on a couple of occasions, they'd be like, Wow, okay, yeah, let's fix that. Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah, it's all about relationships and curating a healthy sense of confidence that's that's constructive. Yeah. Hundred percent. In general, though, the thing that makes me nuts about working in animation is that, by and large, this whole thing is divination on the part of the actors, reaching into the hat and just showing the creatives what they want because they don't know. Mm-hmm. Many of them have no idea, and you're and <laughs> you you guys have to. Uh, practice alchemy in there and offer them an option that that dazzles them and that's that's some crazy stuff so that's why it's important to me to make things comfortable Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and i i'd imagine with the muppet babies specifically like that's there's a lot of music in that show as well and and a lot of huge talent so um i feel like it probably checks off all the boxes for you on top of obviously the great people you work with and stuff yeah, um, I've actually ended up doing uh, a bit of work on the side for the composer in that show as well. Nice. Um, so when we record the songs, we're, we're, we go pretty hard and fast. 
uh, and we'll get a bunch of takes, a bunch of coverage, and then another editor somewhere down the line will make a compilation of what he feels are the best, most musical choices, and clean them up, and then give them to the, the composer, Andy, to do the final mix and make sure those choices are the correct ones. So mm-hmm. um, actually, when I had COVID, <laughs> I was working on the last set of songs for Muppet Babies and like the finale episodes. Um, making those choices and like cleaning everything up, making it really nice. It was pretty fun. Um, I actually really enjoy that process of compiling vocals and like pouring through umpty ump takes and finding like the most glorious details and helping them to shine. I think it's super fun. You know, some people might find it crazy and endlessly diverting, but I, I totally dig it. <laughs> that's cool. And that's actually that reminds me of um, you've kind of partially explained it, but like, one, you know, as a voice actor, you go into a session, there's one audio engineer. And so we, we kind of have that that single track mind of, oh, that's that's the audio engineer. And sometimes there will be a different one for that same project at another session. But but like there are multiple working together. So can you explain to me, like I'm a five year old, what your process is like from start of session to once the voice actor has left the session and you're still working and collaborating to sort of the end of, you know, final form of that audio. So let's hone in with a little more specificity. Uh, are you talking about remote recording? Are you talking about like the whole post-production process from record to mix stage? Both, I guess. But I was thinking initially more of just the whole pro- post-production process um, and sort of, yeah, what goes on like at a traditional, you know, the voice actor goes in studio, everybody's in studio, the director, producer, you. Um, and what happens sort of once they leave. And also during the session, obviously, like, you know, you're riding the gain, um, which I don't know how, because anytime I try to do that from a remote remote thing, if if it's a dynamic read, it's hard to not blow out, you know, or be too quiet. So, um, yeah, that along with the post-production. Okay. So the thing about dynamic gain is you have to have a clean noise floor. And the noise floor is is the the quietest thing in your signal, right? Mm-hmm. The noise at the bottom. Usually you don't hear it. It's a sub-perceptual experience. But what it does is ground your psychoacoustic sensibility and not distract you. So you can have suspension of disbelief, let's say, and when you're watching a movie because all the voices sound like they're in the place where they belong in the story. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because they were, if it's a cartoon, they were recorded nice and clean and neutral. And the, the sound designers and the mixer could treat it to fit a certain way and all gel together. Or if it's live action, they were recorded huh, perfectly imperfect with the right microphones and the right placements to create the right ambience for the right context moment mm-hmm. to moment in the story. Right. So if you have a nice quiet room that's not reflective, you can control gain two ways, actively and passively. Actively is adding saturation to your preamp by turning the knob. And this is going to change the tonal characteristics and the overdrive, as it were, of the signal. Mm-hmm. Now, what, the, what you want to do is find a good baseline, like a middle ground, so that you can then pull a fader, which gives you lots of throw, let's say up to 12 dB above your zero point, which is uh, four times as loud, um, logarithmically uh, so 6 6 db means twice as loud in okay. terms of audio levels when i say that got it and so like uh 
I'll try and find a spot where the conversational level is like between minus 24 and minus 12 on my Pro Tools fader. But if they get really quiet, uh, I can push the fader up and not hear any noise because things are being taken care of. Mm -hmm. But as you've seen me do, sometimes people are extremely dynamic as they need to be for animation performance. That's here, there, and everywhere in between in the span of a line or a paragraph or whatever. And so I have to strategically understand that performance, understand the intention, and also be smooth enough on the fader to not create any artifacts in their performance when I change the gain structure of the microphone's signal. And that's kind of a subtle thing, but not that hard to get a handle on. Once you, you just have to be confident and do it and like make enough mistakes to know where they are. Right. Right. Okay. And like when that happens, like you've gotten good enough, I imagine it's sort of do that on the spot and sort of, uh, spontaneously like predict where the read is going it's not like yep. you, you have to read the script ahead of time and think okay this is probably going to be a louder section you know well you've seen me do it with the audition copy and voice actors network workshops and like yeah. granted i've heard some of those things a thousand times right but sometimes they're new and sometimes the, the performance is completely new like you've been in there with me when someone read a thing we've heard over and over like it was the first time because they just brought something new to the table mm-hmm. but but yeah you know it's all about just being attentive, staying calm, and just being ready. And also just apologetically and honestly asking for another one because, like, something happened. Yeah. When it happens. Yeah. Totally understandable and and forgivable, especially considering what you guys have all had to do this past year. Yeah, that's Um, actually the the hardest thing about remote records is, is leaning on actors and, like, asking them, like, you know, do you need to turn down, like, are you comfortable? Um, this is what I can, this is how much I have to give to take care of you. I think you're in a good place, but can we try this? Like it's a lot of distraction, um, beyond just having to reach for that fader yourself. If you have to turn, turn it down. Right. Um, yeah. And I think this, I imagine this has been really, really challenging for people. Yeah. Some more than others. And uh, of course, but, um, I'm curious, you mentioned, uh, the noise floor and by the way, just you explaining everything in the way you did, it's, I don't know, to voice actor, especially when this past year you've had to really, you know, uh, perfect the sound of your home studios. It's like, it's like, just give me more. It's, 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 it tickles me to hear all the specifics and you explain it so clearly. Um, but specifically with the noise floor, is there like a, a sweet spot where like actors should hope to have their noise floor at, at the conversational level? I always reach back to my audiobook broadcast specs. If you can get your record track to read at minus 60 dB full scale, now that's the digital meter in your DAW because Mm -hmm. it stops at zero. It goes from nothing or the dither, which is the noise floor that's generated inside the DAW, um, all the way to the top where you hit the red and it's no longer any good because the cup has overflowed and they can't generate the math to convert your signal into a digital audio waveform. Um, so yeah, minus 60 dB full scale. That's broadcast spec for audiobooks. And if you can target that in your booth or better, lower, I mean by better, um, you're going to be in great shape. 
That was part one with Peter Munters. I am genuinely sorry to make you all wait for part two. In the meantime, here are some ridiculously helpful tips. Like tip number one, you can't be a successful voice actor without the feeling of friendship. Whether it's in the form of childlike play and boundless creativity during auditions or setting friendly, collaborative vibes with everyone at a session, friendship breeds great art. Two, get out of the mind frame of trying to give directors or producers what they want. As Peter has seen countless times during sessions, it's the actor's ability to pull a performance out of their magic hat that most helps creators and directors know what will work rather than the actors trying to appease them. It's a subtle but important difference. And three, a tech tip. Shut off the music. I need your brain's full attention. When recording, set your gain so that your conversational level is between negative 12 and negative 24 dB, and your noise floor is at least the acceptable standard negative 60 dB. Usually, it's better to set your gain at a level that can comfortably record your highs and lows and then adjust volumes with a fader, because adjusting the gain directly during a recording can change the tonal characteristics and overdrive of the signal. And on that note, may all you voice actors keep acting up.